so scattered this week stop being scattered it's not my fault but also is definitely my fault (laughs) (laughs) um no it's just because it's right but it's like tomorrow is may which means that it's gonna be may (laughs) literally i've seen so many people put that meme up today i refuse to put it up but i just sang it which is superior but it means that if tomorrow is May, then it means my book comes out in less than two months, oh which is freaks me out. Are you quaking? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's gonna be great. I feel it like is. I feel like Penguin has been really great. They've been doing so much cool stuff for you. Um, people are really excited about your book. The premise is awesome. The cover is awesome. I don't think you have anything to worry about. Like, obviously, it's scary. Like, you can't you can't make it not scary. But as a friend, like, on the outside looking in, I don't see anything but, like, happy things. And I want to make sure that even if you're nervous, you're also letting yourself enjoy what a huge accomplishment this is. Because it is. Thank you. I'm going to cry now. I hate you. I love you. (laughs) No, but it's true. Like, I think that, like, it's really real to be super nervous before your book comes out because it's a scary thing. But I think sometimes we focus so much on the the nerves that we forget, like, wait a minute, this is the thing that I've been working towards. Like, also, like, give yourself props and, like, just be happy about it. That's, I mean, that's what I want to do. I mean, and honestly, I think that I'm accomplishing it 80% of the time. That's fair. Yeah. And I was actually telling this to Beth the other day. Um, I think I was telling it to you as well, was that I think that my brain has created some kind of a defense mechanism where I can't dwell on like things that are coming up too long beforehand because I'll just freak out. And yeah, you I, told I'll, me that. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like completely not un, unable to function. Yeah. And that's just not going to be good for anyone. So, well, yeah, because I, you've forgotten that you've had things coming up already because of this new method. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Um, it's, it's not that I've forgotten. Um, it's that... I knew it was happening. I just wasn't thinking about it. And then I like right beforehand, I was like, okay, well, what do I need to prepare? Which might seem like I'm frazzled, which I guess I am at some, in some instances, mm-hmm. but it's because like, I purposefully did not want to think about it until like a couple days ahead of time. I mean, everybody deals with stuff very differently, you know? And if that works for you, I think that's fine. Like for me, I have to like put it in my phone calendar and I have to also put it in my like planner and like write it down and like I need to be almost ultra prepared for it and I'm not very good at doing things sort of like winging things I'm not I'm really not 
And that's why I have such a hard time with, like, being late. Like, um, whenever there's an event in the city for our listeners, like, I get really stressed out because I have to rush all the way from Westchester to the city. And, like, I hate being late. It's just really not my favorite thing. I like being organized with stuff. So it's really difficult for me. Um, But that's how I deal with them. Like, whatever works for you, I think that's what you got to do. Yeah. And I, and I do like, I do think about it and know that this is not like a system that would work for everyone. And it probably wouldn't even work for the majority of writers. Um, because I know that like to feel like you're not prepared for something will probably make you feel more stressed. Right. I think it's more that I, I think because I'm writing full time right now that I need to create some kind of order within my brain and this is just how I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I think that works. As long as as long as it's working for you, you have to sort of take your own path and find whatever makes you less anxious. Um, yeah. And, yeah, but I'm excited for your book coming out. I mean, I'm definitely excited. I think it's more that um, it's starting to feel more real and also more surreal at the same exact time. <laughs> it's so strange. Like the fact that I go into like the penguin offices to have meetings or the fact that I've been able to do a few really fun, cool events or interviews. I'm a hundred percent grateful, like so grateful. I can't even explain because I honestly do know that this is a gift. Like the marketing and publicity that we get as a gift. And, you know, I'm not going to make any commentary on that right now because right now I'm talking about how grateful I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, because, um, because not everybody gets that, you exactly. know what I mean? So, exactly. I mean, you can personally be happy and like excited for your marketing while acknowledging that a lot of times it's really hard for authors and particularly authors of color to get, um, the same amount of support, um, that they would need to sort of break out in the industry. Um, and I think that's fair. And I think you can like both things. Yeah. So I think it's, it's like half of me is like, Oh my goodness, this is so fun. This is so amazing. I'm so happy. And then there's always a part of me that's like, and be grateful because honestly, not everybody gets this. And, and the fact that you're getting this is such an amazing thing. And, you know, don't expect this to be the norm or don't expect this to be like the first of like many things. It's just like be in this moment right now. And I, yeah, I think that's helped me a lot because I I think that I treat every single individual thing that I've done so far as a very special thing and it's been fun and it's been good and it's been a great way to celebrate. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you should, you should be celebrating those things. Um, Cause yeah, nothing is promised for the next book or anything like that. And um, I was thinking about that a lot today. How so much of the success that we experience is luck because we're not the only people who work hard or who have talent or have something to say. There's so many authors out there who, you know, have worked their asses off to to get to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of it is just like timing and like having somebody recognize like, Hey, this, this is good. And I like this. And I think other people will like it too. And, um, 
it, it, a lot of it is luck, you know, and that's why when people are like, these are the answers to how to do publishing, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do look at the timing of, of um, my publishing journey and the fact that I was always going to write a story that was based on my Korean heritage. That was never really questioned once I actually started on my journey to publication. But the fact that I didn't get the book that I wrote, you know, back in 2013, like I didn't get that book, um, acquired, um, means that I wasn't published like three years ago. Um, but that also means that I am being published at a time when actually Korean culture is in the public eye, which I think about all the time, like timing and luck and just how it's so subjective and you never know what's going to happen. And it's just such a strange, it's such a strange industry to be in, to be completely honest. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was talking to, actually I was talking to Patrice about this the other day and how sometimes we want things to work out so badly, but Uh it's important to look back at a moment when we wanted something so badly and it didn't work out. And it's better that it didn't work out that way. We can't always foresee how things can like fit so perfectly like they are for you right now, you know? And, um, and that's not always the case, you know, but sometimes it is. Sometimes you just have to trust your own timing, trust your own timing of your own journey and Mm -hmm. let things play out. You know, sometimes you're just not ready, maybe not in terms of craft or anything like that but maybe the world isn't ready for you so to speak yeah and honestly the thing is is that even if things look like they're working out really well you can never know what the result will be even then right I think that's important too because there's actually conversations that are going on right now about how the YA industry looks as now as opposed to 10 years ago and you know, there's all these theories about why it looks different or why it's changed. And, and every, everyone has their own individual opinion on it. Um, but I think it's really interesting that one of the things that people talk about is that, um, nothing is a sure thing. Like, uh, before there were definite set concrete trends that happened one right after the other, like maybe it was a coincidence, maybe it wasn't, but like one right after the other, we had paranormal romance with vampires. We had dystopian with hunger games, um, and divergent. And then we had a really big rise of like angel books, mm-hmm. which kind of, um, overflowed into, you know, the shadow hunters, which was like a different take on like, you know, um, the descendants of angels and things like that. So, so those were pretty rapid fire one right after the other. And ever since, the end of, I think the end of probably the angel trend. Um, we really haven't had anything. And I think that people were like, oh, well, what do we do now if we don't have a trend? It's so funny though, because I, I personally hate the idea of trends and chasing trends. Yeah. Um, so I like the open-ended um, aspect of the industry now, but I also understand that people are like, oh, the industry is throwing a lot of money at this book, but we can't even know if it'll work out because we're, we're not going by these trends anymore. It's just, will it work or will it not work? Yeah. I mean, I really wish that things were more just like story driven and character driven. Like, is this, is this a good story? Are these characters that I think will stand out to readers? Um, 
because it sucks to think that something could have so much merit and be just like like imagine daughter of smoke and bone being but um rejected right now because like angels are not in yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that series is a masterpiece. And actually, that series came on the tail end of that yeah. whole thing. So it, like, I think it made it by the skin of its teeth, to be quite honest with you. But could you imagine if books like that um, weren't sort of given a chance to, to be in readers' hands because of trends? That kind of scares me a little bit. It does scare me. And it's like, what are we, what are, what are we, what are we missing out on? You know, how many amazing stories are we missing out on because people don't know how to market something or they feel like they don't have the comps. And, you know, this is coming from somebody who's completely not on the publishing side of things too, in terms of like working at a publisher, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that people who are on the other side of it have a completely different um, take and a lot of them are up against each other almost like it's not like it's a collective no I think when it's in-house there are some people who can really go for something and some people who don't um I saw I think it was I want to say it was DJ from Wednesday Books who was talking about um Wicked Saints and how he like really fought for the book from the very beginning because he really super believed in it Mm -hmm. um and I think things like that are are really important because it's the thing everyone says over and over again, and it's subjective, you know? Yeah. Well, it's why I'm glad that we're, that we don't, aren't chasing trends anymore in the industry because right. of the fact that if we were, then certain books definitely would not have been given a chance and, yeah. and they're some of the best books out there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It just, I just hope that it, it almost feels like there's in in terms of YA I think middle grade is different right now I think middle grade is uh selling more um mm-hmm. at least from what I've seen of people on sub and myself but for YA I think that people almost like don't know what to do <laughs> it's yeah. like everyone's like at a standstill um but I guess we'll see what happens, you know. I I guess we will, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, and this might be just like a a too simplistic, optimistic way of looking at it. Instead of being paralyzed by the fact that things aren't going the way that you're always used to them going, why don't you just go down the path that you always wanted to go down and mm-hmm. see if that'll work? Because yeah. I think that these times in, in, um, in industries like these, tra- it's a transitional time is really what it is. Mm-hmm. That This is when those like new ideas and those things that like might have been re- automatically rejected before might be picked up because they're like, why not? Maybe this will rejuvenate things. Maybe well, this shit. will be a new if, path. If, if that's the truth, then this is the best time for me. <laughs> I'm saying like, <laughs> I'd rather have that mindset. I'm telling you, I'd rather have that mindset than to be like, well, we don't know what to, what to do, so we'll do nothing. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Yeah. And I mean, I hope that's true because I think, I think we are missing like sort of like a breath of fresh air in yeah publishing like just like an onslaught of like new ideas like things that aren't just acquired but like are published well like that we hear about that is not just like under the radar books you know because I do think that that those books exist I'm not saying that there aren't original stories a lot of them are being written by people of color I think we are taking the chances um Mm -hmm. but I think 
it's twofold. I think it's, we need publishing to take a chance on our stories and to sort of like trust that there is an audience for the things that we are writing and also to give us the support once we're there, you know? No, but that's why we say hire diversely, hire at all levels. And then once you hire them, provide the infrastructure and support to retain your diverse hires, because that's the only way that the system will have sustainable change. It's, it's so like, I mean, I feel like a broken record to be completely honest, because we say this all the time. We try, we explain it. We are it's it's not hard to see that the reason why there's these big upsets about things that are falling through the cracks is because we're trying to stay with the same old system that just doesn't fit the world we live in anymore. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, what can we do about it? <laughs> you know what I mean? And aside from talk about it, it's, it's hard because it there do hard. have to be people who are making decisions and who are taking those chances and who are sort of actively saying we're going to do this and Uh um it takes actual action and thought and follow through and I think people in publishing are just always so reluctant to change things um I mean we saw with the whole retweet thing during dv bit like even though We'd been doing that for the past three years because other contests retweet, people started freaking out about it. And somebody on Twitter said, like, how are we supposed to change publishing if we can't even get people to not press a button? And I was like, a mood, really? Yeah, I I don't know. I feel like I'm very fascinated with the current conversations about how publishing has changed in the past 10 years, especially because a lot of them are concentrating on kid lit. I'm fascinated with what people are saying. And I've always, always, always learned from people who came before me. So I'm always grateful to see these conversations happen. I'm just thinking that these conversations, as far as they've gone on, so far that I've seen are like, things are changing period. But like, I think that the next step is to say things are changing and this is what we can accomplish with this change, or this is what we're hoping will be accomplished after this change. Like that's, that's, I feel like the conversation is, isn't over. Um, and it can go in very interesting places and I'm just really excited to see what will happen there. Yeah, I guess I'm excited. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard I know it's hard it's because so many false starts and so many issues with publishing and like mm-hmm. it it gets to feel very discouraging I'm not gonna lie like real talk I felt discouraged all day because I feel like and we talked about this too but I feel like you can work your ass off you can do everything that you can possibly do to elevate yourself and to move forward in your career and it doesn't mean anything and that that's across the board for any writer it gets even harder when it's a person of color but it gets Mm -hmm. really difficult um when you see people not taking as much care with their writing and still benefiting from it and it's it's discouraging it is discouraging but you know I'm, i'm hoping that we do learn as a community and that we grow that's all I really want I'm tired of fighting (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired and I'm over it 
And it's one of the reasons why I'm not on Twitter right now, because I just need to cleanse myself from everything. Yeah, I, I can, I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, I really liked the, um, the post that, that you put up, um, which was actually today, uh, about the fact that like nothing is guaranteed in publishing. It's not. Mm-mm. It really isn't. And so I feel like don't set yourself up for disappointment by expecting anything special in your path. Like expect what you think you deserve in this in sense of like selling your book or right. like, you know, having people talk about it. Right. Um, but I, I think that, um, yeah, you can never expect for like a certain kind of marketing or a certain kind of, um, push or a certain kind of readership. You just can't. And, um, and also there comes the extra layer of comparing yourself to other people who got to where they are in a, by completely different methods. And yeah. that's also never going to, never going to end well if you keep on doing that. Yeah, that's, that's a, the worst idea. Yeah. This week's guest is Rebecca Cuss. She is an associate editor at the head of recruitment at a book packager, and she used to be a book scout. How are you doing, Rebecca? Hi, I'm doing great. I'm super excited to be on Ride or Die. I was literally just listening to your episode with Tara, and it was so funny. It, it was oh, so yay. funny. I had to that cut funny so much out of that Oh, that was long. That was a long. It was long, <laughs> and we we were delirious. Like, there's something about there's certain podcasts that sometimes we record, like, when we're hungry or tired, and that one was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I think that you guys should someday do like an episode that's just like your blooper reel of all of your extra material well that's <laughs> that's funny that you should say that because we I'm in the process of building our Patreon right now and one mm-hmm. of the features for our patrons is going to be bonus content um, yeah. that I cut that is like all like really funny ridiculous things and I already have so much stuff <laughs> oh my gosh I, I don't know if I'm excited or scared about that you should be excited both a little excited a little scared it's all funny stuff and it's stuff that I could have left in but for time's sake and because it had absolutely nothing to do what we were talking about (laughs) I had to cut it um anyway so I'm really excited to have you on um Rebecca because for the longest time, I had no idea what a scout was. And I think that, like, <laughs> 99% of authors have no clue what a scout is and don't yeah. know what a book packager does. So I think this was going to be, like, very informative for a lot of people I, yeah. out there. So I I was – what we usually do, Rebecca, as you know, because you've listened before, is that we usually go through a person's journey to publication. And obviously, you're working – on the other side mm-hmm. of the table. Um, so I was thinking it would be a little bit fun, especially because some of our listeners are interested in working in publishing. If you just gave us like your journey into publishing. Um, so starting with you getting, I know you had some internships and stuff and just kind of yeah. explaining what each job was. I mean, I can start like way back at the beginning, which is college and like every good Korean girl, I was pre-med. Um, <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Check. Yeah. Check. And I graduated in 2009, which was like the worst time to graduate college. Like it was the recession, there were no jobs. And a lot of my friends were going abroad for the year to Korea to teach English. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And so I did that. And I think 
that should have been a sign because I literally didn't pack anything except my Harry Potter books. And like, <laughs> right. Cause I was like, who knows what I'm going to get to that. read over there. That is so priorities, <laughs> right? I love that. Um, but then I ended up, so I was teaching English at an all girls high school and they all love to read. And so I just started doing, developing all of my lesson plans around books. Like I had my parents ship over like all of my gossip girl books, my babysitter's club books, like everything that I love to read. And that's how we did all the lessons. And then when I got home, when I went back to the States, I was like, I really don't want to be a doctor. How about I try to work in publishing instead? And then, I mean... I didn't get like real publishing jobs right away. I was living in Boston at the time and I worked um, as a used bookseller in the Harvard bookstore, which actually was great because when you're working as a used bookseller, you get to know just like every single book that's out there. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of became like the kids expert at the store. Um, I had an internship at the MIT press and then I worked as a sales assistant at Candlewick And then I had like some lost years because my partner decided he needed to get a master's degree in the middle of North Carolina. (laughs) Oh gosh. Yeah. So we moved to North Carolina, which is not exactly a hotbed for publishing. And I just had like administrative jobs, but I got my first master's there, which was in multicultural literature. And then through that, I met um, Ebony Thomas, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. You might know her. She's like super big on Twitter. She's always involved in like all of these kid lit conversations. Yeah. She's very vocal. Yeah. She's amazing. And she encouraged me to apply to the University of Pennsylvania as part of their graduate school of education. They have a program in reading, writing, and literacy. And she said that I could study with her and just become like an expert in children's literature. So that's what I did. And so I did that for two years. And then after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to move to New York City and, you know, get a job as an editorial assistant. And like, it's going to be great. And like, (laughs) that did not happen, obviously. (laughs) But I was, I was networking like crazy that summer I literally called up every single person I knew and I ended up getting on the phone. My good friend from grad school, her parents knew a guy who ran a printing press in Brooklyn and I got on the phone with him and he was amazing. And he was like, let me introduce you to this woman who used to work for me, but now works in textbooks at Houghton Mifflin. And she took me out for lunch and she was like, oh, let me introduce you to my friend, Rachel Horowitz, who is the children's scout at Maria B. Campbell Associates. And so I met with Rachel and she took me out and she was amazing. And she's like, actually, there's no job openings as a scout. I had no idea what scouting was. I was like, I went into that meeting just willing to meet anybody. And she explained it to me and I was like, oh, this is cool. But she was like, there's no positions. But she hired me as like a freelance reader because scouts read everything. And we often hire freelancers to read kind of what we would consider maybe like the lower priority books. Um, So that's what I did for the summer. And then at the end of the summer, she announced that she was leaving. She was going to be an agent and they offered me her job. And that's how I became a scout. Oh, my God. I love that. I love how one thing can lead to another in 
when it comes to publishing jobs and like that whole thread was almost like you were like just like stumbling through it yeah yeah Yeah. it's like one person introduced you to another person who introduced you to another person Mm -hmm. it's so interesting because I think that's so indicative of the fact that publishing is very very networky yeah on both sides, though, because I think that um, as a writer, you also learn that networking and getting to know people is really important because then those people will notice you once you have your book deal and will talk about your book. And it's just all this very social industry. <laughs> it's really? very social. And like, it's a little weird. I mean, I love it because I'm a very social person and like I'm... I think I'm good at networking. Like to be a scout, you just have to have a a talent for networking. But at the same time, I sometimes worry because it creates an industry where you feel the need to just be liked by everybody and also to like everybody. And that, especially lately, I'm finding to be like a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, because bitches be wildin' in publishing. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. And you know what? As a a woman of color in publishing, that's something that like really gets to us because not only are we told by our cultures or whatever to be like a nurturing, like nice person, but like we're told by the industry to be a likable person. Mm -hmm. And it just sucks because in order to get any type of change for people of color, you have to speak out against the system. And immediately someone's not going to like you because they don't like that you're changing their status quo. And you're going to be that upstart person. And you're always going to be known as that if you are, are committed to working towards change, which I know most people of color in publishing are committed to change. So it's counter. Yeah. Like, yeah, it can get really difficult too, because like speaking from experience, um, I think no matter how you talk about things, um, there's a certain level of racism that gets thrown at you in the form of like, uh, tone policing and sort of accusing you of bullying when you could say things in the most calm measured um way possible Mm -hmm. um I remember once someone was upset at me about something because I told someone something was racist and they said well yeah she's known for dragging books and I was like I am not I actually never talk about books by name on Twitter I'm very most upbeat Twitter ever yeah I'm very very careful not to do that when I talk about issues I talk about them in a very general sense because I never want to make somebody feel targeted um, mm-hmm. when, you know, I don't know that person, you know, unless they're being like shitty to me. Um, but but that doesn't always matter. And yeah, that that can be really hard. It can be hard to, to, to speak up about things and to yeah. not feel like, hey, I'm burning bridges right now for my yeah. career, even though I know I'm doing what's right. Because some people are always going to see it as aggressive because I'm brown and that sucks. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like those same people, like, they don't understand that there's a difference between being professional and being likable. I've never been in an industry like publishing before. Like, obviously, I don't currently work in publishing anymore. But when I did, it was eye-opening. Like, Mm -hmm. I came from a very professional industry of clinical research and medicine, And I don't think that like 
medicine or healthcare is like a harsh place to work in. But there were times where like, I would send out an email and be like, Oh, this is what's, this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen next. Just FYI for your information. And then I'd see the person and they'd be like, are you mad at me? And I'd be like, no. And they say, well, in your email, you sounded really mad at me. And I said, in my email where I literally just gave you a bullet point list of like what's yeah. happening with the project. <laughs> How is that mad at you? Is it because I didn't ask you how your day was or something? I don't understand. And like, it was that I had such a disconnect. And I think to this day, I still don't understand. Um, but it's just, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting field. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think as women also, it can be hard because people want us to like have emojis and exclamation marks after everything we say, or it'll be read as rude. And I think that's, it's sexist on top of everything else. So yeah, it's so sexist. And it's compounded by the fact that we're working in children's publishing, right? So immediately we're cast with this like maternal veil that we shouldn't have to be that person because this is still like our profession and our job. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. That's why I stand Victoria Aviard. Cause she's always like, whatever. Ho. I said what <laughs> oh I said. God. She doesn't say she she doesn't say ho, but like you can feel it that that's what's at the end of the sentence. (laughs) I don't follow her on Twitter. Should I? Yeah, you should. I I love Victoria. She's she's actually like a very interesting person to follow on Twitter. I do think it's it's worthwhile to like see how she interacts on social media because I I think that she has a valid presence, Um, which is funny because I. I don't, I think like originally I would see her and I'd be like, Oh, Oh my God, she's like yelling at people. And then eventually I realized that I was seeing it from a lens, like from a lens that I was taught to see things Mm -hmm. through and I had to unlearn it. And which was, it was a really great learning experience for me. I think Mm -hmm. we all had this like internalized, like bias towards women, like hating, like Anne Hathaway for no reason. And like all of these things that like hating Kristen Stewart and like all these people who like, it was like, but why? And like, now I see it and I'm like, Oh my God, I was such like, I was just playing into everything that, like, yeah. s- society wants me to be towards other women. And, like, I'm so ashamed. Um, but it, I think a lot of us are learning. Yeah. You know, and reevaluating I, those things. Yeah. And the thing is, is that Kid Lit is very, it's it at least the majority of entry-level and mid-level positions are held by women. Mm-hmm. And so it is a very female dominated industry, which m- makes me even more baffled by the fact that we still play into those stereotypes of how women should act in society. Um, and then if you add on top of that, the fact that publishing is an entertainment industry and everyone's supposed to be excited about everything, it's going to be like, it's the next big thing, it's the next hot thing, blah, blah, blah. it's the next best thing. It's just, it's so much, it's so much to like unpack. And, but once you yeah. do start unpacking it, you really do see the, the, um, patterns for what they are. Yeah. How did we even get to this part? This I don't know, what I, mean. I really liked this tangent. Like it actually felt very cathartic to me. That's <laughs> what ride or die is all about. We get you on and then you just let it all out. Um, yeah, just, what's your feelings? No, we were talking about how networky publishing is. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So, so, okay. You're a scout. What do you do? What is that? What's <laughs> what a scout? Is that? This is where the jingle's going to go. What does your job mean? Oh, that's so good. Thank you. Okay. So scouting, 
<laughs> was something that not only did I not know that it existed, but it's also one of those things that you can't even really understand what you're supposed to be doing until you're like in the job. But the best way that I can explain it is that scouts, for all intents and purposes, they work for clients. And those clients are usually foreign publishers that made up the majority of our clients. Um, and then we also worked for a major streaming service. And I know other scouts uh, scout for studios and some scouts scout now for places like Audible. Basically, what you're doing is you're acting as a filter for your clients especially your foreign clients, um, because the U.S. market is so gigantic, especially compared to every single other foreign market, these editors don't have time to be like sifting through every single book that's coming out of the U.S. And they depend on their scouts to be like, and these 20 books are not for you. Like these are the two books over the next couple of weeks that you should read and decide if you want to offer on them. Because these are the books that we think are either going to be gigantic, definitely are going to be sold for film, definitely are going to hit the list, or we think that these are the books that are your taste because, I mean, not all foreign markets are the same. What editors in Spain are looking for is like wildly different than what editors in Israel or China are going to be looking for. So as a scout, you really have to understand all of your clients' specific tastes and interests and kind of curate a list of books that are going to work for them. I like that. So you're basically there because they don't have time to do all of that stuff. So yeah. you're, you're helping them out, helping hand. I have we a, help. Yeah. I, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Is there ever a time <laughs> that you interact <laughs> with authors that a scout would interact with an author or is it, no. is it strictly between the publishers? So this is what has been so crazy about leaving scouting and working now as a book packager is as a scout, what is so freeing about it, but also sometimes not freeing, but we can get into that later. What is so freeing about being a scout is that you really are, the only thing that you have to consider is your client. So you don't get involved in any of the financial decisions. You aren't advising your client whether or not to buy something, you're not advising them like how much to pay. You're literally just saying like, here's a great book. I, as a scout, you would never be in touch with an author. One, because there's really no reason to. Another reason is because you would never want to kind of piss off agents or editors or anyone else by being in direct contact with an author. So it's just not something I ever would have done. That makes so much sense. And also it, makes sense because I've never talked to a scout as an author, but like magically like deals just get sent email to me. Oh, Kat, (laughs) shut up. (laughs) I'm sorry. That sounded so pretentious. Just magically. I just deals have to me. That is lying because we talked when I was a scout and I thought that Kat hated me and I was like, oh my Kat hates me. (laughs) (laughs) No, okay. This is the story of Rebecca and me first meeting was that my book had had recently sold and was like announced, but I had a conversation with Beth where she said, you're revising 
right now with your editor. And so let's just not send any version of the book until you finish your first round of revisions with your editor, because her first round of revisions was like pretty hefty. And, she, and Beth said, I want to send the new version. So I'm not going to do it right now. Send it out to scouts or, or anyone right now. And I said, okay. And that was my mindset. Mm-hmm. And what Beth really meant was, I'm not going to send it to anyone except for Rebecca. Because I'm very good at my job. Or I was very good at my scouting job. <laughs> but she didn't tell me that. And so I went to a book event and Beth introduced me to you. And you said, I read your book. I loved it. <laughs> I, in my head, I was just like, no, this is not what's supposed to be happening. I was told this wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and so I just, like, she didn't look at me. <laughs> Kind of like turned Aww. away. Yeah, that that was cat. That, that that's cat's freak out. Like that's how she freaks out <laughs> when she doesn't know how to handle a situation. I wasn't. I probably wasn't there. I would have been like cat. Let's go in a corner and drink some water. I just retreat into myself. Yeah. I'm like, I don't need to talk to anyone, so I'm going to go over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that that is just proof that it's good that scouts don't talk to authors because <laughs> we'll all just freak out. Yeah. That's probably true. On average, what do you think, how many books do you think you read like per uh, week? Per week, I would say that's a very hard, like around Bologna, you were reading everything. So if you had to read 20 books in one week, like you just had to do it. And, but in like the quieter times, like the summer, I would say like anywhere from like five to eight books a week. I like how five to eight is the quieter time. I cannot read five to eight books a week to save my life. Me either. The other thing is you have to understand, like when you're reading as a scout, it's not like someone's going to come up and like quiz you on plot points, right? You just have to be able to tell your client, like this is the gist of the book and this is whether or not it's going to work for you. When you're reading for a streaming service, it gets a little more complicated and you also have to keep in mind that like we were, I mean, I can say we scouted for Netflix. That's very public knowledge. When you're reading for Netflix or any streaming service or studio, um, you're, you also have to think about backlist. And that is where the job got like really difficult because wow. even when there was nothing new to read, no book, no big book coming around the corner, there was just, I mean, backlist is unlimited. Oh my gosh. That's so yeah. much reading. So, did, so you complete, what you're saying is you completed your Goodreads challenge every year. Like, <laughs> I complete my Goodreads challenge in January, literally. <laughs> that's, that's a flex. Um, okay, well, here's my question, because as a scout, I'm sure that you had your eye on trends, which actually Clarabelle and I were talking about before, and yeah. I made it quite clear that I hate the idea of trends. Uh, yeah, same. Did you have, like, any insight um, into what makes a trend happen, or it's just, like, it's just like everyone is just instinctively knows like this is going to be it. I have so much to say on the topic of trends. <laughs> I don't even know. Everybody get what, a snack and a drink right. and settle yeah. in. Just settle right in. <laughs> because also like we talked about trends a lot and kind of like the idea of categories a lot in grad school and just how they're inherently problematic and racist and sexist, which is like a whole thing. But just like in the conversation today, I feel like trends are very dangerous right now because I feel like we're trying to kind of redefine the YA industry 
and choose where we're going to go next with stories and how we tell them and even like how we share them with all of these different platforms. And the simple fact of having trends encourages publishers and editors and agents to kind of chase trends and they get distracted by trying to find the next big thing as opposed to investing in good stories and investing in authors and investing in the idea of long-term careers which is not answering your question that you just asked me I realize but no <laughs> I, we want all your trend thoughts yeah all of them. let's just yeah let's for sure anything trend think think king what? Who's talking right now? What are these words? Anything <laughs> We're just interested in it all. <laughs> yeah, anything trend-related, we want to know yeah. your thoughts on it. I think That's trends cool. come from what publishers hope will be big books, and I think that's why we are seeing – I think we're seeing two things right now in the industry. We're seeing massive advances for big, like, quote-unquote, big debuts that ends up being – nothing or not nothing, sometimes nothing, sometimes just not as big as the publisher was hoping it would be. And on the opposite side of that spectrum, we're seeing amazing books that are bought for what the industry would call a modest advance that get no marketing or publicity or support and then don't sell, which is why we're seeing trends die and why we're seeing trends just come out of nowhere. It's because of these two things. Do you think that publishers are forcing it because there honestly hasn't been a trend as big as paranormal dystopian in like four years. Yes. I I 100% think that that's what's happening. Like there, I think what people don't realize about, I mean, everyone can name the three biggest books that created YA, right? We have Twilight, we have Harry Potter and we have the Hunger Games. And these are like the tentpole books But what people aren't understanding is that these books changed the industry. And these books were only, I mean, Harry Potter, I guess, started 20 years ago. But that's like a a relatively short time. Mm. And that book was like 200 years in the making. And to think that we're going to get another gigantic book, like one of those three books, that is going to change the industry forever is crazy. To me, anyway, I think it's crazy. Yeah, I I agree. It's like... It's either that level of success or nothing. And that's a lot of pressure also yeah. <laughs> for debuts. Yeah, it's, it, it's so strange that any industry can exist on such extremes the way that publishing does. Because they either have like their huge, sure thing that they throw all the marketing money at, like the John Greens and the Cassandra Clares, mm-hmm. or... They have people who like are unproven, so they're like, "Well, you're unproven, so why would I spend money on you?" Yeah, it's like to make me proven, (laughs) (laughs) to give me a chance in hell, to give me a freaking (laughs) chance, man. (laughs) But I, I do think there is a middle ground that that does exist. It's just that like the middle ground should be much bigger than it is. Mm It's like in, in the real world, the biggest class of people are the people who live in the middle class, but they're, we just don't talk about them as much. We only talk about the uber wealthy or we talk about the stricken poverty level poor people because yeah. those are interesting stories. And I think it's the same in publishing. I that agree. That was a weird analogy. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it works. Like people, especially... I'm not, maybe not especially publishing. Publishing is just really the only industry that I know. People are so focused on extremes. 
And I think it's because everyone, people are chasing trends. They're chasing the next big thing. And when I was scouting, I, I scouted with, um, my former colleague, Sarah, like what we would always say to each other was, I never want to hear that phrase again. Like I, I, you get so sick of words like big book and Mm. the next big thing. It just, because these are constant refrains. And at the end of the day, they're a little bit depressing because it's like, well, here is an amazing, wonderful book that means so much, but it's not a big book. So let's just put it at the bottom of the pile. I also think the thing that really baffles me is that there are some books that publishers spent a lot of money on and they market it really big and mm-hmm. it does well seemingly from the outside. But then if you have access to the actual numbers, the publisher still was at a loss. Yeah. And it's just because they're working on such extremes. It's just, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying like, don't give a lot of money to authors. That's counter to like my own, my own, you know, Interest. income. <laughs> yes. Give me specifically and cat lots of money. If you're yeah, listening, lots of money. <laughs> but I am saying like, it's just, there's, it's just like, I don't get that. I, I, I just don't a hundred percent understand what the business model is here. Uh, we were saying before Rebecca, um, that, that what is happening now with publishing is it seems that a lot of the conversations, at least on the author side, I, I think you've, I think you've seen this conversation a lot of authors are currently having a very vague conversation (laughs) where they're saying publishing's weird is it weird things feel weird for me do they feel weird for you (laughs) yeah and and a lot of the people who are saying this actually are veteran authors Mm -hmm. who've been in the industry for like eight nine ten years Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating to me to see this perspective because I am a new author um and but I wonder if the reason and and I really want to get your opinion on this but I wonder if the reason is because like when pub, when YA had its big boom in like you know between 2004 and 2008 it was it was riding wave after wave of trend and now we're kind of all just like we have nothing to hang on to we just got to do whatever <laughs> <laughs> and they're like confused they're like uh, but no tell me what what the trend is should i write about werewolves and they're like no 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 just do what you want it's like but mermaids it's like no no just do what you want <laughs> it's like <laughs> But yeah, like, what do you think? What do you think it is? Like, why they feel weird? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. Like, I think that they're very used to having, like, historically, why publishing has been very delineated by trends. Like, you could always pick out, like, the big trend of the moment. And we're kind of moving away from that right now. And I think, like, a lot of these authors also are reacting to kind of this era of YA that we're in right now, which is incredibly diverse and it's leaning towards more open-mindedness and more opportunity for POC and like women of color writers. And I think that there's a lot more, I don't want to say policing because that's not the right word, but there's like more of an openness and people not being scared to call something out. Yeah, And I think that they're reacting to that because they just can't go blithely along their way and write whatever they want without doing a little self-interrogation, which I don't think people really want to do, especially if they haven't been required to do it in the past. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I also feel like it's, 
I, I feel like it's such a strange thing to think about because the way the industry is right now for women of color, for diverse people, for marginalized communities in general, it feels like at least a few small doors are being opened. So our world is at being opened more than it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I never really 100% thought about the op- other perspective of people who've never had to worry about clo- doors closed in their face being like, well, now it feels like you're closing doors for me. <laughs> like just by opening doors for diverse community. And I can think of like a few authors who have a few white authors who have literally made careers for themselves and are quite prolific, but those careers are built upon the appropriation and exploitation of identities and cultures that are not their own and are reacting very badly now to being called out for that, like very badly. Mm, Sucks to be you. Yeah. (laughs) I, you know, honestly, I, like the thing is, is that I, I guess I just don't understand like why you need to be appropriating other people's cultures to be creative. Like, because they think it's seasoning. They think that it's like window dressing. And I think a lot of that comes from people not empathizing with us as humans or taking Mm -hmm. our cultures as something that's actually serious because they can't relate. Do you know what I mean? They've been a lot of people who do this have been so far removed from their own cultural heritage that they don't have anything to compare it to. So when they're doing that, they think it's like, oh, I'm making a purple person from a planet, whatever. And they don't realize that you're you're taking something that is sacred and that means something very important and very deep to to another human being. And that makes our books even more important. It's it's very insightful. Okay, I'm going to get a little academic on you guys. Yeah, but sure. what Darabal said just that is super insightful because there is this theory, it's called optional ethnicity, and it focuses on how white people, especially white people who come from kind of like an amalgamated Eastern European background who don't have a cultural or racial identity that is obvious from the way that they look kind of exist in this liminal free space where like, oh, it's St. Patrick's Day. Like I'm, you know, my grandma was Irish. Like I'm going to be Irish today. Or like, oh, it's Oktoberfest. Like my great uncle was German. Like I'm going to be German today. And so they're very used to this idea of kind of being able to float freely from one ethnicity to the next. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's exactly like exactly what you just said. Like they're not used to not being able to do that. I'm a fucking genius. Yeah. (laughs) No, you know, I, and I agree because I also think that, um, there's something, there's something to be said about like wanting to spice up for lack of a better phrase, spice up the world that you're creating. And so you look towards the foreign, the foreign cultures because they're so different. They're so exotic, you know, and at the end of the day, it's cheating because you didn't want to be creative enough to make your own freaking world. So you stole ours and right? misappropriated it and put it in an incorrect context because you're lazy. And this is what is so crazy to me because it's like writing. Like you can literally make up whatever you anything, want. Yeah. Anything. And I, okay. The thing is, I understand that we actually are all human living in, in a culture where, in a world where like we're all, always being subconsciously influenced by things around us. So I'm sure if you're creating a religion for your world, then it is definitely going to have some similarities to religions of the world now, because the way that we, we worship is a set 
thing, you know? And so I, I, it's going to be like, it's going to be mirroring something or another, but I also just feel like, I feel like people aren't, they're only looking at like the dress, like you were saying, like the dressing of it. And they're not looking at like why people do the practices that they do. Right. And, and I think they just want that one step deeper with their own world building, then they would understand why the cherry picking is misappropriation. Right. Mm-hmm. And how it's, it, it's so hard to like, actually, like when I sit down and think about all the weird nuanced things that we did in my household, like with our shoes and with putting the pots and pans in the in the oven for no reason and like the things that like you're you know what I mean like things that like a lot of immigrant families do and that are like little things like everyday things they're 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 so hard I wouldn't be able to write them down all myself if you asked me to because they're just second nature to me so so to ask so to think of someone else being able to do that and do it well it's just it's it's really not easy it's really not easy to do it and actually do it authentically yeah and it also like it pisses me off because it's like not only is it happening in why publishing but it's happening like all over the world and like every aspect of our life especially now with korean culture and okay on one level i like really love that k-pop is popular and i can watch k-dramas on netflix but i have to say the other day I bought fucking kimchi from Whole Foods. Oh, no, don't do that. It was was like, first of all, it was white. And I like, I was like, okay, like it's white. Like maybe it'll be fine. Was it it more kimchi? I have no idea what it was. I threw it away. It didn't even have any Korean on the label, but I was so desperate for kimchi. I was like, this is going to be fine. I'm going to make this work. It was like white people fucking kimchi. It was white. It tasted like kombucha. It was the most disgusting thing that I have ever put in my mouth. And not only that, but it was like this tiny fucking canister and it cost $10. What? No, man. You're, I'm, you don't ever tell your mother that you did that because she, <laughs> she will be die. ashamed. She, she would, would die of shame of her daughter. That, <laughs> yeah, here's, okay. So here's the thing. And I also was talking about this earlier is that it's so weird when you think about the timing of things because I've been writing since, you know, I was a kid, but I've been writing to be published since like 2013. And if I had gotten published like around that time, like 2013, 14, 15, then I would be publishing a Korean inspired book at a time when people were like Korean stuff. Why? You know, but I'm instead I'm publishing in 2019 where like people are like BTS and K dramas and all this stuff. And I'm grateful that someone, that there's a thread for people to have like shorthands. I don't have to explain it. Cause like there is a foundational understanding that's spreading globally. And I'm so grateful and excited for that. Um, but then there is also the case that the people are definitely still picking and choosing what parts of the culture are entertaining to them and not. And I, I do wonder if there is going to be some exotification of it. They're picking and choosing, and it's like, it's also this feeling that I, and I'm sure you and, like, all other people who come from marginalized backgrounds, like, we were rejected for so long based on the way we look and based on our cultures, the color of our skin, and 
I just can't bring myself to let go of those feelings and just like find joy in the fact that people are now so interested in my Korean heritage. I want to be like, just just get away from me. Just go away. I, you know, I think that However much I am grateful for the for the heightened interest with, of our culture, which I've always been proud of, and I'm so glad that other people are interested in it, I think that history is what it is, and we can't mm-hmm. ignore that. And the fact that historically, um, non-Western cultures have been t- have been appropriated and and it's been bastardized and created into a version of itself that's not no longer true to the roots. I think that's I think that's a valid fear. But I also kind of I don't know, I kind of am hoping that with the globalization of the world with social media and things like that that maybe people are more sensitive to how they enjoy other cultures now. Nah, they or, won't be. I'm trying to be positive I'm sorry people are trash we can't like Kat's hopeful it's the Hufflepuff in her but listen I'm a Hufflepuff too but I'm gonna tell you something the people who are who are like that are already like that and they're already being respectful yeah yeah so you just gotta sometimes you just gotta block and move on okay here's the thing that I will say about this you should make that shirt though Block Block and move on. on. That's a good one. Nobody steal it, you dumb bitches. People (laughs) always try to steal my ideas. I had to shut somebody down once. All right, go. Yes. Oh, my God. No, here's... Okay. (laughs) Okay. I acknowledge the truth in what you're saying, but I'm still going to give an example of something amazing that I see as amazing. And I... So I was, like, growing up during the first Hallyu wave in the late 1990s and I was still a little bit too young for that for that wave but like I noticed it and um I think like now seeing this time it come this time around which is actually like the third time it's come around um and also for people listening Hallyu wave is like the Korean phrase that we use to say like the global wave of Korean pop culture um so the spread of k-pop or k-dramas outside of Korea um, is that, is that this time around fan, global fans have been adopting the, the culture of, of K-pop fandom in like a way that I've never seen before. And it's kind of cool in, in that, like, um, my cousin got to go to the AMAs, which is the first time that BTS was playing in America and on like a big stage. And she said, like, you couldn't hear it on camera on TV, but when you're in the audience, the whole crowd was doing the fan chants. Like, you know, the fan chants for when it's like, it's like, Sarang, hey, oh, BTS. Yeah. Him, That's Jungkook. cool. Yeah, like, and she said, and everyone had memorized it and everyone knew and, like, people were, sh- like, had printed it out and was, like, passing it around and sharing it with each other. And it was, like, a sharing of this subculture within a culture and it was being embraced and it was being celebrated. And it just sounded like, just like a nice thing to hear that it, it's that people really wanted to understand everything that c- came attached to this amazing group that came to America. So I like that. That does make me happy. That like melts my ice school heart, like just a little bit, but there's <laughs> a long way to go. I think there is still a long way to go. I just feel like, I feel like we're allowed to have hope too. It's like hope adjacent. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, we got such a huge tangent. 
It was a good one, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like tangents are never bad. Always good. <laughs> I feel like if you need to delete anything, though, this is a, this, you can delete this. <laughs> It'll, it can be our bonus content. Um, so actually, Rebecca, we, because we knew that you were coming on to the podcast, we knew that a lot of our listeners might have questions. Mm-hmm. So I have the first listener question. Ooh, okay. Um, so this listener would like to know, um, more about foreign rights and when they're sold and bought, what time in the process after the bot book is acquired by a U.S. publisher, are foreign rights shopped, um, and, um, if that varies, if there anything that, you know, it depends on like, like why would it vary? Whoa. Okay. That's a lot. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I guess. Okay. So the first thing to understand about foreign rights is that you typically see rights sold to a publisher in one of three ways. Like an agency will send, will sell North American rights to the publisher which means that the agency retains all foreign rights. The agency will sell world English rights to the for, to the publisher, which means that the agency retains all foreign translation rights, and then they'll just sell world, which means like their agency retains nothing except North American. So the difference between world and world English is just those foreign countries where they speak English, so the UK, Australia, New Zealand, um, I might be forgetting some because I'm really bad at geography. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. Uh, Usually, though, agencies will keep, and this is not always, like publishers have foreign rights for a lot of things. Obviously, all publishers have heads of their foreign rights department. But I would say the majority of the time, an agency will keep translation rights just because agencies are the ones who are kind of setting the terms of a deal. And most of that time, like they will try to keep foreign, of course, just because there's more money in trying to sell foreign rights. Um, Mm -hmm. When are foreign rights sold is something that like really, really varies. For example, I know that the big middle grade book of Bologna, which was uh, something like Amari and the Knight Brothers, I think, it's a middle grade. It was selling foreign rights before it had even closed a deal for a U.S. publisher, even though it was out of Jenny Bent. It was a U.S. book. So especially around the time of Bologna, you'll see books that are going out in the U.S. and going out um, internationally at the same time. Interesting. It does happen. A lot of times, though, what will happen is something will sell in the U.S. first because a lot of foreign publishers like to know the, what the deal was in the U.S. or like to see how big of a deal like uh, a publisher made for a book in order to kind of gauge like, oh, how much money should we pay for this book if we offer on it? So a lot of times a book will usually sell in the U.S. before it sells abroad. Um, and then a lot of times books will be published and you have to wait for a book to get published before it will sell abroad because publishers want to see how it does in terms of sales. So like it, there's really no kind of like blanket answer for that question. It really just depends on so many things, the U S deal that's made the time of year that it goes on submission, how well it does once it sells. And then also once a book sells for film or TV, that also really opens up the foreign market and foreign publishers, especially now put a lot, a lot of kind of 
they put a lot of consideration into books that sell for film. It's something, if your book sells for film, you can almost guarantee that it will sell in additional territories or sell in territories if it hasn't already sold in some. Yeah. I mean, that was like a really long and kind of. No, I liked it. Sir, but. No, I think that will, I think it's good because I think it's very clear that at every step of publishing, it always depends. It always that, varies. It's really like the one thing that you can say about any question that people ask about the process <laughs> is that it depends. Like it yeah. just depends. I hate it depends. I know. It's so frustrating. <laughs> and it's like it sucks now that I'm on the other side of it because as a scout, you don't have to worry about any of that. But now that I'm in packaging and you have to like, you know, be really nervous about like, is your book going to sell or editors going to like it? Like it's, I really hate it. Yeah. It, it just depends. Like that's all there is. So I, yeah. So I do want to get into the book packaging side because that is your current job, but I have one last question about, yeah. and it's kind of related to what we were just talking about. So you were saying that if a book ends up selling, you know, film rights or something like that, then that would open up the market that would open up the door for more foreign rights being sold. But of course, now it's not just film rights to a regular studio. There are streaming services. And of course, you worked with one of the biggest streaming services as a scout. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, how do you feel like the market has changed or grown or whatever because of these really big streaming services coming in and starting to shake up the industry? I mean, I think it's exciting. I think that these streaming services are coming in. It just means more opportunities for authors. It means more opportunities for all of us who are like story nerds to see like our favorite stories being played out on the screen, which is always exciting. And there's definitely the Netflix effect is like what it's being called. That, that definitely exists. Um, I think though, in terms of like how that's propelling interest abroad, I think it definitely is, but something that you have to keep in mind is that it's even if a book does sell for film or TV to a streaming service, it's not, it still isn't going to have that same kind of platform as like a feature film in terms of international. So it's great, but somewhere like Amazon or a smaller streaming service like Facebook, like they don't have the kinds of platforms, the kind of immediate platforms as like a universal or like Fox film. I guess Fox doesn't really exist anymore or like a Paramount film is going to have. So it's there and I think it's like growing, but I don't think it's a guarantee like everything else. It depends. They don't, Sorry. Yeah. they don't have the range is what you're saying. Yeah. Not exactly. Currently. Currently. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that makes sense. I still think it's exciting. I mean, some of my favorite adaptations recently have been via Netflix. So oh, I'm really excited same. for um, Six of Crows. We should have a watch party. Oh, my goodness. I'm That's so going to be epic. Excited. Um, okay, so let's talk about book packaging because that's where you are now. So um, can you just give an overview of what book packaging is, also what IP is, and that kind of process? Wow. You're asking like really big questions tonight. Um, (laughs) Yes. So I think the easiest way to explain book packaging is actually Camilla explained it to me like this. Um, Camilla Banco, who used to work as a packager, said that it's like really similar to movie making and that you kind of are 
bringing in in movie making, you're bringing in like screenwriters and actors and directors and producers, and you're bringing a vision to life. And packaging is the same. So you're bringing in um, development editors, which is what I do, who develop a story. And then you're bringing in um, agents because we work with an agent to sell the stories that we create, but we also work with agents in terms of hiring writers. And so then you're also bringing in writers who write the stories that we're developing. And then you're also bringing in traditional publishers who eventually we submit our books to a publisher and they hopefully buy it. So it's like a lot of kind of the separate pieces of publishing, like all coming together under one big umbrella. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot in just one position. Book packaging involves IP. And so for just anyone who doesn't know what IP is, could you just give a quick explanation of that as well? Yeah, IP stands for intellectual property. And basically, it's just a shorthand that means that the packager that I work for, we develop ideas in-house. And so these ideas are our IP. And a lot of, you see IP happening more and more in traditional publishing as well. Scholastic does a lot of it. Razorbell is known as kind of an IP imprint. Um, imprint at Macmillan also is known as an IP imprint. So all of these imprints do kind of what we do in the sense that they develop in-house ideas that become their intellectual property. I actually did not know that Razorbill and imprint were considered IP heavy. Me, but that's me either. It's really interesting. No, no yeah. idea. We're both learning a lot today. We are. Thanks for teaching us. <laughs> and our listeners are going to learn a lot. That's a really good breakdown of like the general gist of like book packagers. Um, so I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners are really interested to find out like how does a writer end up working with a book packager? Like how does that relationship get made? There are a lot of different ways. I think that a lot of it is kind of word of mouth. Uh, we work with authors and those authors know other authors and they're like, we, we meet them that way. A lot of them, because I'm the director of recruitment, my job is basically to meet agents and say, what authors do you have right now who maybe aren't working on anything right now or need to be kind of like inspired for their next idea or just, you know, want to work with a packager And so it happens that way. And then it also happens that you meet a writer and you're just like, I love your writing and I really want to work with you. Let's develop something specifically for you that you can write. Oh, that's so interesting. I actually, I love the idea of that because I think that there is a misconception with IP and authors that like authors are just writing to a, like a script or a formula. um, And then it's just out in the world and they had no creative say in it, but I know that it's not the case at all. And like, it's an organic process and it's an ever changing story. Yeah. The author has a huge influence on it. I mean, for me specifically in the way that I work, I, I, I almost like need my authors to feel very invested in the story. And I like it kind of like, maybe I'll suggest something in the outline and say like, Oh, I think this character should do this at this point. And I really, I love it when they're just like, no, like that character wouldn't do that. Like I'm going to have them do something else instead. And like, I don't get offended at all because first of all, like my ideas are sometimes not wonderful. And also because to me, it just says like, oh, they love the story. They love these characters. Like this is their story because after like our name, the name of our packager is not on the cover of that book. It's that author's name like this at the end of the day, like our role as a packager, I think is best as like a silent role. 
you know, to yeah. me, I like it. If no one knows that this book was created by the company that I work for, because I think that means that we did our job. I love that. And also if any of Rebecca's writers are listening, then just know that you're allowed to tell her to fuck <laughs> off all the time. But and really she are. said it here, but not <laughs> like that mean. <laughs> Clarabelle's like, oh, that's harsh. <laughs> well, what if one of them is like texting her right now about to say, like, guess what, Rebecca? My character's not doing this in chapter 12, and you can fuck off, and then it'll be your fault, Kat. And then what do you do? I mean, I would cry, fun. actually, because oh, no. I, don't, I don't like when people yell at me, but. Oh. <laughs> no. well, I'm can't. sure. Well, that's a answer. No one actually do that. You can't be friends with me, and I yell at everyone at all times. <laughs> Terrible's always yelling at me. It's really rude. I mean, I grew up in like an Asian Jewish household, so I mean, I'm used to people just screaming in my face all the time. But it's yelling out of love, though. I think there's a difference between yelling and being rude. Yeah. Or like yeah. yelling at Kat because she went on Goodreads again, and Kat, she needs. Oh my God. No, she she didn't. She didn't. I'm I just didn't. saying Why? when oh she God. does, I yell at, at her. <laughs> <laughs> I got yelled. Actually, I got yelled at today because there, I there is a new like thing that it's called Bookish First, and it's it's actually I think it's really cool. They provide like a sneak peek, like um, uh, sneak peek of a book, like the first like fifty pages or something, and then people are allowed to write their like reactions and their, their first impressions of the book based on just those 50 pages. And they rate it as well. Um, and I didn't know that this existed until we were partnering with them for Wicked Fox, but they've done this for like some pretty cool books, like, um, the Gilded Wolves or Blood Witch and things like that. So, um, it was really cool. So I was looking at it and I was like telling Clarabelle about some of the reviews and she's like, why are you looking at reviews? And she yelled at me. She's like, it's not Goodreads. And I said, it's another page that has reviews and you shouldn't be on it. And I'm not going to celebrate whatever it is that you're telling me because you shouldn't be looking at this. Clarabelle. Yes, you really just shouldn't. But also I did a review of Wicked Fox on there. So, (laughs) Oh my God. Plot twist. Um, All right. So next audience question um, is what are the misconceptions some people might have about your job? Um, and what are, what is something that you wish people knew that you did? I really like this question because I feel, and this is something that I wasn't expecting going into this job, but you come up against a lot of people who are really resistant to the idea of scouting. And I think a lot of people think that scouts, and I've heard this from people like my friends and people who are not my friends, that scouts. (laughs) My enemies. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah, this reputation of people call us like the spies of the book industry or like the snakes of the book industry, which I think is actually a lot meaner than spy. Oh, I think I have called you a spy, but like I have called scouts. I don't think I called scouts spies. I just said, if you want to be friends with someone who knows literally everything, be friends with a scout. You guys do I mean, know some, some it's really, true like a lot of we do. We know a lot and I'm not saying that that's not true. We do, but I think the idea of calling us, like, not us, I mean, I'm not a scout anymore, but calling scouts spies or snakes has kind of, like, a malicious undertone to it. And, like, all the scouts I know are just, like, incredibly warm, friendly people who are doing their jobs, right? And so I've come up against so many people who are just, like, 
you're the worst. And I'm like, I, I get, I get paid to do a job just like you do. And you can at least be professional to me. And it's just like this idea that they think that like scouts are out to do something bad, like ruin a deal or just like, you know, bust open some like big publishing secret. And I just, it's just not true. Like the way that I work or the way that I worked with agents and editors, it was like a completely symbiotic relationship. Like with an agent, you call them up and I would say like, what do you have that's like coming up on the docket? Like, what do you think would be interesting to Netflix? Like what, this is like what my French client is interested in. Like, what do you have that's coming up? And like, of course, always this idea of like, will you slip me the manuscript early? But it's not a one-sided relationship when an agent like would do something nice for you. Like you also keep them informed of like, here are the books that are selling that are maybe similar to this book that you're going to go on submission with. So maybe you should like, you know, get that book on submission a little earlier than you were thinking, or maybe just wait until this other book kind of like goes away when it gets after it's sold. And then a book kind of goes away for a little bit as the author is editing, you know, and then with editors, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like there was a really, I'm very close with some editors, like some editors who I would consider real friends. And I have one thing that I was really proud of is when Sarah Dessen was on submission with her new book. Um, I forget what it's called, but the one that has like the boats on the cover, um, an editor friend of mine who I knew was like a gigantic fan of Sarah Dessen and was always like, if you ever hear of anything Sarah Dessen related, just like tell me. And I knew that Sarah's agent was on submission with this book. And so I called her and I was like, it's out there. Like she's leaving Viking and she hadn't gotten the book in. And she was just so grateful and like called the agent and the agent immediately sent it to her. And in the end, she didn't end up getting the book, but she still sent me an email that was just like, I wouldn't have even gotten to read it if it wasn't for you. And like, I'm so grateful for everything that you do. And I just think that's a really great example of what scouts do. Like we're there to kind of, we're there to help and we're there to do our best work for our clients. Mm-hmm. Once a scout brought me ice cream at Frankfurt. Aww. So that's really nice. That's so nice. Well, okay. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense and it is very strange because like I've, I've heard, I've literally heard an agent before say like, Oh, the scout called me. And like, why are they calling me asking me about a book I'm about to go on submission for? And I was like, well, I think they want, to help you sell your book to foreign publishers. Yeah. I mean, that's the deal, right? Like, yeah, <sighs> like it's, it's, I, I, I understand that a scout's main client is the foreign publisher, but at the end of the day, it is a symbiotic relationship where it's like, what is, what does an agent want? They want to sell their books to, they want to sell their clients books and they want to sell it to us publishers. They want to sell it to foreign publishers. They want to sell it to streaming services or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if a scout's going to help you get one of those goals, then I don't understand why people are so resistant to it. I really don't either. And like, in all honesty, the scouts that I know are the most discreet people in the industry. So I think that the fear that like you send something to a scout and all of a sudden it's going to be everywhere and your manuscript is going to like be leaked on the internet. Like Mm -hmm. scouts live and die by their reputations of discretion. So I don't know any scout who would kind of like ruin that by doing something, by like leaking a secret Yeah. I also think that that, yeah, it's like, we're all working in the same industry. And so we Mm -hmm. all have a same layer of integrity and 
so of course, like you wouldn't expect an editor at, at a big five imprint to leak your manuscript. So why would you expect a scout to leak it? Yeah. I mean, I think that coming from a scouting background actually like helps rather than hinders me as I like continue to work in the industry, because I think that I really understand the value of them. And like, I still now speak to scouts like on almost a daily basis because it's just valuable. It's how you learn like what's going on. That makes sense. And I I think, yeah, I mean, I like scouts. You're the only scout I know though. (laughs) (laughs) And I like you. So it's fine. I know two scouts and I like them both. It's you, and it's the person who brought me ice cream. Who brought so, you ice cream? <laughs> so far, we're doing great here, guys. That's a goal. Yeah. <laughs> that scout thing. So, if okay. I bring you ice cream, do I become like your favorite scout? No, because Kayla also took me out to dinner. So, okay. so two dinners plus ice cream, and then it's I've clinched it. Maybe I have to Sorry? see if the dinner is good. I went to a really good Italian place. <laughs> 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 You're playing hard to get in area. Listen, I am exp- I'm expensive. We will go to Shabu Shabu. I don't know what that is, but I'll go. What? Oh, we're going. Have you never gone? Oh my god, we're going to Shabu no, Shabu. I haven't. Oh my god, we're totally gonna go. There's actually a place that I really like in the city that that we'll we'll go to. Yes. Anyway, okay. So, okay, so this is the final question of okay. of the day. <laughs> Um, someone would like to know if you're willing to share your wildest scouting story. (laughs) Um, do I even have one? I mean, I used to take naps on the floor of my office because I would get stressed out during the day. Oh, (laughs) so sad. That's not wild. I I hate that story. It makes me sad. sad. It's true. But, like... Well, it sounds like when you went to, like, Bologna, it was wild. I was going to say. I was going to say Bologna was not wild. But Bologna was... I mean, it was wild in the sense that like, you never stopped moving or talking or anything. Um, Bologna was... Uh, fun, I think. I don't like to say that scouts are the hardest-working people in publishing, but I will say that scouts are the hardest-working people at any book fair. Because at any one time, you're servicing upwards of like 20 clients and also your streaming service, which is usually make some kind of appearance at these international book fairs. And you're also like having to keep tabs on like every single thing that's happening because people drop books during the fair because it's a great way to get buzz and sales are made and you have to know everything that's going on. And so I was at Bologna for like five or six days last year. And I'm pretty sure I got about 20 hours of sleep like total because at night you're going back oh yeah you're going back to your hotel room and you have to read you have to read all the books that are coming in and your clients expect reports and so you have to read and you have to write a report and you have to mail it out to all the clients and at the same time your streaming service is also looking for like what the big book is going to be and at the same time every night you're not getting back to your hotel room until like midnight because there's tardies and there's dinners and there's like so much April spritz, like I thought I was gonna vomit and then like just pass out. Oh no! Yeah, it's a lot. It's like a lot. But that makes I me so sad. I this is not to say like don't go because like other people have like a lovely time at these fairs. 
<laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think when you're working at those fairs, I mean, I travel to fairs for my day job. So, like, when yeah. you're working at fairs, um, it can be quite intense, and it's a lot different than just, like, even attending as, like, an author or even just yeah. going, like, as a publisher sometimes, like, because it just depends on what exactly you're doing there. Yours seems, like, very intensive, like, at all times because you're reading for me the setup and breakdown is the hardest part um yeah so so it just I I I get that it's not as intense for me for sure when I go (laughs) I definitely get more than 20 hours of sleep but I can relate to like not getting back till really late and then having to wake up really early every day and and you're overseas so it takes a lot out of you it takes so much out of us like I remember last year we had one or two days of vacation afterwards. And I remember not even being excited about it because all I wanted to do was go home and sleep. But I did like Florence and I did get to see where Kim and Kanye got married. So that was amazing. That was like a religious experience for me. We were in Florence for one day and my friend Sarah, who had lived in Florence for a little bit was like, okay, you can choose where we go. Like, where do you want to go? And I was like, show me where Kim and Kanye got married. That was like the first thing that came out of my mouth. That's hilarious. So ridiculous. Kanye came to my old job once and I made sure to do my hair like Kim Kardashian to up the chances of him talking to me. He smiled at me as he walked past my desk, but we didn't get to talk. But he is very cute in real life. Like he's very handsome. Wedding. Oh my god. Um yeah, I used to work at CAA, so I saw famous people all the time. Um But yeah, he, he, it, it, everyone was freaking out. And I remember that day specifically, like somebody came in for an interview mm-hmm. and they were in my boss's office. I was like bringing them to my boss's office. And like, as they were sitting down, like Kanye walks by and they saw him and like that person's face <laughs> went so <laughs> white. Imagine? Like, could you exactly going to a job interview and it's just randomly Kanye West. <laughs> I would die. I think I would die. For sure. Yeah. And I'm not like a Kanye fan. Like I'm a, I'm a Kardashian fan, but like I would, I would still die. Yeah. He was actually really um, nice. Everybody said the whole office is like buzzing the day he came. I have a lot of celebrity signing stories. We'll talk about it at dinner. Okay. Yeah. At the fancy (laughs) dinner that you take. We'll talk about it at Shabu Shabu. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So Rebecca, everyone who's on this podcast tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story or something they wish they'd known before getting into the industry. So you can pick, you can do either or you can do both. It's up to you. Also, if you wanted to do the advice one as like advice you wanted to give marginalized creators, um, then that would work too. Yeah. However you want to spin it. Okay. Actually, my embarrassing story kind of transitions into advice. Amazing. Wow. A legend. (laughs) I know. You're trying the the most. (laughs) When I was looking for a job in publishing, I paid for a subscription to Pub Marketplace. Um, And the reason that I did this is because I knew you could find emails on there. And I was kind of like shameless in my networking. And so I was sending just like cold emails with my resume and cover letter attached to, I'm not kidding, like publishers of like all of these imprints that I really love, like every single like highest level publisher that you can think of, like people that I should not have been emailing. And some of them are really nice and wrote me back, but most of them just like didn't respond. And then I became a scout 
and I actually then like had a legitimate reason to meet these people. And like, I met a lot of them over lunch or drinks and like some of them it clicked and they were like, Oh my God, are you that girl? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was really embarrassing, but I mean, they were mostly really nice about it, but like, I was still just like embarrassed to my core but this becomes advice because I don't think you should ever be embarrassed for trying too hard. And I, I really, I really don't because actually when I was interviewing for jobs, I, that was like some feedback that I got where an editor told me that I was trying too hard in my interview and that I seemed desperate and it really stayed with me for a really long time because that's feedback that I've gotten for a lot of my life because I just happen to be a person who wears their enthusiasm like on their sleeve, like very much so. And so for a long time, I was just like, okay, like I'm just going to be super chill. and just like, you know, I don't care attitude, but it's not me. I'm just a person who tries really hard and is super enthusiastic. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with trying too hard, especially in an industry that's like as fiercely competitive as this one. And that's yeah. my advice. Let me tell Honestly, you that spoke I hate to that my person. soul. That person is a jerk. That yeah. person doesn't get any screen like any airtime. Like fuck them. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like they're not even being interviewed right now. You I'm are. assuming that that person has some type of of privilege. It was, it's, it was actually like a queer POC man. What? Yeah. I can't. I can't. Anybody can be trash. New jingle. (laughs) I know. Honestly, you know what it really, it, it, I should stop surprising me because sometimes the way that people get success, not saying that this person did, but it's very valid that sometimes people got success who who are uh, minorities by playing into the system that's trying to push them down in the first place. Yeah, I agree. Ugh, it stinks though, man. Okay, but yeah, going back to what you said about like oh, yeah. not being afraid to try too hard, I really like that because I am someone who tries so hard all the time. I'm so mm-hmm. annoying and I have no shame. And I really like that advice because we sometimes, especially as marginalized like people in this industry we have to we have to try harder to be seen and noticed and heard and to also be shamed for it at the same time um is not cool but I love that advice so much it's amazing yeah you and I talk about that all the time Mm -hmm. because I allow myself to believe that if I am too much like whatever that means that people will be like annoyed with me yeah, but then I think you're you're robbing yourself of your own joy and like being yeah. yourself in a situation where it's like you you worked really hard to get to the point where you're at and like you should be able to express yourself however you feel is best in that situation. And um somebody in talking about the whole like publishing is weird right now thing um <laughs> today someone uh, said on Facebook um that a lot of times it feels like we're pandering to our, our fellow authors when really we, we should be in conversation on social media with our readers and like talking to our mm-hmm. audience and like just being genuinely ourselves as authors. And I think sometimes yeah. we're trying not to annoy um, other authors who you know, they're not really going to give us anything in the first place. The people who are already getting like bitchy and annoyed about any little thing that we do. So, yeah. 
I think to focus on that and to try to, you know, sort of make everyone like you, like we were also talking about before, hitting all the points, um, (laughs) it's it's impossible. Someone's always going to not like you. So just might as well live in your truth and like be your own annoying self. Yeah, this whole conversation has come full circle now. Like we're right back at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, no, I like this. And also I do agree. Like, I mean, my whole point was like, I worry about that, but I need to get over it. And, and, and so I like to be reminded and that's why I'm friends with you, Claire Bell, and you too, Rebecca, so that someone can always remind me to get over myself. <laughs> yeah, I yell at you constantly about this. So. Constantly. So, Rebecca, do you want to tell listeners where they can follow you online? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter um, at Reeves the Reader. Reeves is R-E-E-B-S. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the hey. show. This has been a really fun, very long chat. And <laughs> We covered a lot of bases. Yeah. We did. It was a lot, but I've (laughs) loved it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. It was really super fun. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. And leave a review. Also, get yourself a copy of Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And pick up Wicked Fox by Cat Cho. See you you next next time, time, nerdies. nerdies.